Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. We're closing out a series today. As we've been going through the month of July, we've been looking at the theme called joy through loss. Can you have joy amidst loss? Is that something we can do? Think of one of the greatest losses you've ever had. Some, it may be a loved one. It may be a job. It may be any number of things in your life. But think of the loss that you've experienced. Did you experience joy amidst that loss? Now, let me explain. As we've been going through this series on joy amidst loss, the purpose of this is to really dig in and find joy. Because, see, joy isn't an emotion. It's accentuated by emotions. Joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says in his letter to the church at Galatia, for the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, against these things there is no law. So joy is a fruit from the Holy Spirit that should be bore in our lives. Right? Are you, are you with me? Okay, how about you at home? I don't hear your amens, but I'm hoping that you're saying amen to your TV, your electronic device. Let me give you the story about joy amidst loss. There's a story I came up with, uh, not that I created it, I came across, let me say that. And it's an account of a very faithful Christian missionary. He's not a well-known missionary. He's not one books have been written about. Uh, not really, one of the more famous ones. But there's an account of this very famous Christian missionary by the name of Alan Gardner, who experienced many physical difficulties and hardships through his service in Christ. Despite his troubles, he said, listen to this, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. Is that your mantra today? Is that your mantra in life? As long as God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. Now, his story doesn't end there, and I'm not stopping with his story there. Listen to what happens to him. In 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving in Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. When his body was found, listen to this, his diary actually lay nearby, opened, and it bore the record all the way through up to the last entry. It bore this record of hunger, of thirst, of being wounded, and being lonely. I don't know what it's like to be lonely as a missionary, but I do know what it's like to be lonely in ministry. Every pastor experiences loneliness. Because the nature of the job that we are called to do in service to the Lord, brings with it a lot of separation, not because we try to separate ourselves, but because we are seen as separate from. 
And so it is a very lonely place to be. But listen to what his diary, his last entry said in his little journal. It showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly his last entry. And listen to the last sentence, the last words of his last entry before he passed away. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. One of the missionaries who, by the world standards, would not have been marked up there as one of the greatest of greats because of the plight of his life and missionary struggles. The one whose journal, the words that preceded that last entry, talked about how he was starving to death and how his wounds had been so painful and how he was being overcome by disease. And the last entry, as his hands are shaking to write those final words are, I am overwhelmed by the sense of the goodness of God. I haven't even gotten into my scripture passage today, but let me ask you this question. Are you overwhelmed by the sense of the goodness of God? We started out this year, we've been going through the theme of the fruit of the Spirit every year. We started last year, this is our second year in. So the fruit of the Spirit last year, we actually went through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and our challenge to the congregation as we read through the Bible for last year together as a church was to look and highlight the theme of love from Genesis to Revelation. Where do you see God's love from Genesis to Revelation? And we handed everybody a reading guide to read through the Bible in a year, and we gave you a pink highlighter. Do you remember that? And that pink represented love. And as you went through, you actually, some of you had talked to me about this last year, like, I didn't know how much God's love was actually in the Old Testament. I thought he was a God of judgment and wrath, a really harsh and vengeful God. And yes, he is a God of justice, but he's also, more importantly, a God of love. And many of you learned as you went through that reading guide last year and you found evidence of God's love that he is the same God in the old as he is in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Let me start with this. We started this year, uh, let me say this, we started this year with a theme of joy. How many of you would shoot your hand up and say, 2020 has been the greatest year of joy in my life. Woo! Pandemics, staying at home with the family you love 24-7 without irritation. And then riots and looting The world's on fire, ladies and gentlemen. Do you not find humor in how God orchestrates so many different things? It's almost like, because we planned this series, this theme out uh, a couple years ago, actually about three years ago. And we said, why don't we take a fruit of the Spirit each year, and that fruit of the Spirit will become our theme for the year. And as we go through Scripture, we will highlight evidence of that fruit from Genesis to Revelation. And then we come to the year 2020. Who could have known three years ago? 
that 2020 would have turned out the way that it has. And we would be looking at each other at staff meetings saying, oh, this is so painful. Oh, we've got to muster something, right? Well, here's, the, here's, here's what I know about God. When we set out to do something for him, he oftentimes will challenge that that we set out to do to see if we really mean it or not. We've been challenged so much this year, not only as a church, but as a nation. And church, how have we done in the United States? You know, we've been going through Scripture and reading through it this year, and you should be around the point that I'm going to be preaching on today, or before or after, Lamentations. 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 I kid you not. This would fall into the theme of where we're at or where we're located in our scripture reading. Lamentation, it's only five chapters long in the Old Testament, and it's not like a joyful book. Why? Because it's full of lament. That's the whole point of it. Except, and I challenge you to read, if you haven't been reading through your Bible, catch up or just read the book of Lamentations. It's five chapters long. You can get through it real easily. It is one of the most depressing books of the Bible. Seriously, it is extremely depressing, but there's hints of the goodness of God. In chapter 3, smack dab in the middle of those five chapters, the author, more than likely Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, actually has this hint of joy in his writing where he illuminates the hope that he has in God. Prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament was one of those unique prophets. You know he was called by many scholars the weeping prophet, the depressed prophet. Why was he the weeping or depressed prophet? Because God had given him the privilege to oversee the message of judgment to the nation of Judah, which was the remaining nation of Israel that existed before the Babylonians took it over in 586 B.C. And so Jeremiah was the the prophet who bridged the span from when Judah was still a nation to the taking over of the Babylonians to where they no longer had a nation anymore and they were spread out through the Babylonian kingdom. What great news Jeremiah had. And oftentimes when When I read through Jeremiah and even the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, I almost feel like history is repeating itself. Seriously, when you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, there's a lot going on in our nation that I'm thinking, oh no, that's what's going on now. Oh, and that's what's happening now. And I'm not talking about in the larger culture, I'm talking about in God's church. How we're letting things into the body of Christ that have no place being there. We are to be stationed and guarding the body of Christ from the outside forces that would seek to to infiltrate and destroy it. But let me tell you what's happening. Our culture has found its way into the church, and in order, and here's how this happens. It happens so subtly. We become so seeker-friendly that we start to bend a little bit. Because we want to attract more people. But when we get them in the church building, we neglect to tell them the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's good news, but it's going to be extremely hard on you. 
When do you hear pastors standing up here and say, listen, when you come to Christ, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. When you come to Christ, people are going to hate you that maybe you used to hang, hang around. When you come to Christ, it's going to get a lot harder and more than likely you'll be persecuted for your faith. Those are great mottos for the church, right? If we want to sell the church to the community, we want to sell Christ to the community. It's like, come to Christ, it's going to get worse. I mean, that's really what we're missing here. And we leave people disillusioned. I did a sermon for the virtual camp meeting this year of the Church of God in Western PA. I was the second of three sermons. And I looked at the parable of the sower. And here's what we've done by, by becoming, by trying to make the gospel of Christ and the Bible so palatable for everybody and not that we shouldn't. I want you to hear me out on this because if you cut the tape off at that point or you cut me off sitting here, you're going to miss a big point here. But we've tried to make the Bible and soften the blows of the hardness of what Scripture actually teaches that we try to make it so palatable. We won't hit the rough spots. We're not going to touch the taboo topics. Why? First off, most pastors are people pleasers. So we don't like people to get angry with us. And secondly, we don't want to see people leave the church in droves. And so we've softened the message and we've made it, let me say, palatable and soft that when, we, when, they, when new believers encounter trials of many kind, they don't experience joy. Instead, they experience disillusionment. James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my friends, when you encounter trials of many kinds. We're going to talk about that in a few months. Count it joy when I experience trials of many kinds? Are you serious? How do I do that? How is that possible? When you go through trials and troubles of many kinds, what do you experience? Sadness, sorrow, depression, frustration, anger. That's human nature. But the one who has given him or herself to Christ Jesus should be seeing from the perspective of Christ if they allow themselves to. If they force themselves to deny themselves and truly take up their cross and follow Christ, they can, as James instructs in James chapter 1, truly learn to count it all joy when you experience trials of any kind. Now, he doesn't end it there. What does he go on to say? If I'm counting it joy when I experience trials, why would I do that? Because trials test your endurance. They test your faith. And the longer you are able to withstand the trials and press through with your eyes fixed on Jesus, you become stronger. This is not a part of my sermon. I'm going to get to Lamentations in a few minutes, and I will get you out of here quickly. But listen to me on this. I want you to look at this real quick. How many of you have raised kids through the years, and you know that if you do everything for them, they do not learn, correct? Okay, so if you're a parent or you are an aunt or an uncle, if you're constantly opening the package that's too hard to open, or if you're constantly helping them tie their shoes, are they going to learn the process of tying shoes or opening packages or doing certain things? Now, it's hard as a parent to refrain from doing everything from your kids. Some of you may say, that wasn't hard for me. I just don't like to do it. Um, but it's hard because we see them struggling. But what do they learn through the struggle of opening a package? 
that the next time they encounter a tough package to open, they learn to problem solve and get through it. The next time they struggle in tying their shoes, it may not look the way you would have tied it, but it looks good because they figured out how to tie the shoe. The church has done a great disservice to society and to the people who are a part of the body of Christ in that we've tried to make it soft and gentle like Jesus is just this baby lamb that we hold and cuddle and we pet it. I love C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. You've heard me quote this often, but Lucy, the youngest girl in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, she's never met Aslan, who is the God figure. He's a lion, a great lion figure, this great God figure of the story. She's never met him, but uh, I can't think of the beaver's name, but Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are taking uh, Lucy and her sister and brother to go and see, is it Mr. and Mrs. Beaver? Okay, so I got it right, yay! Um, taking Lucy and her siblings to see Aslan, to meet him, and she's like, oh, I don't know, I've never met a lion before. I should be very concerned to meet him. Is he... Is he uh, safe? <laughs> Is it Mr. or Mrs. Beaver? I think it's Mrs. Beaver. Turns and, I don't know, either one of them, looks at her and says, oh, no, dearie, he is not safe. But he's good. Ladies and gentlemen, the sacredness and the sovereignty of the Almighty God has been so cast aside to make God palatable to the pagan culture that we have made him into something that could be easily discarded. We've made God into a wimp. And let me tell you, God's not a wimp. He is the Almighty, maker and creator of heaven and earth. As I mentioned earlier, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the mighty counselor, Prince of Peace. See, these are titles that aren't shallow, but they're deep, they're mighty, they're big. But he's gentle, though he's not safe. If you read your scripture, if you are a student of the word, you will realize very quickly, which is one of the reasons we challenge everybody to read through the Bible every year, you will realize that the very nature of God is love, but he is not safe. He will not be coddled by his church or his people. He will not take second seat or second best. He has to be all in all. He has to be in the driver's seat of your life. Because if you say, oh, oh let me take the driver's wheel on that, he says, then I'm getting out of the car. I'm not going where you lead. You go where I lead or you don't go at all. Church, we need to hear this message. Now, Lamentations comes at a time where now the nation of Israel is completely wiped out. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom in 720 B.C., and then the Babylonians came along. They took over the southern kingdom called Judah in 586 B.C., 
And now the Jewish people are scattered throughout the Babylonian kingdom. If you want to, you can look that up on your phones and say, Babylonian kingdom, it is a vast empire. And so in order to divide and conquer and to keep the Jews from becoming more of a threat, they took them and they spread them out throughout Europe, throughout Asia, Africa. And now Jeremiah, who is a part of the exiled writes the book of Lamentations in this lament of, oh no, look how bad it's gotten, that God has actually had to rain down judgment on his own people because we were hard-hearted and we wouldn't listen and obey the commands he had given us to obey. But then right smack dab, as I mentioned, in the middle of this book, he writes these words. And I'm going to start with Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. I challenge you, if you don't know how to find it in the Bible, that you learn. There's a few Bibles there. Uh, they, are, uh, they are clean. You can pick them up. Um, and, and turn to Lamentations. So it's a little past the middle, Okay. In Lamentations, you'll zoom right over it if you're not careful. It's right after Jeremiah. Verse 19, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Now, what's he doing? So Jeremiah is saying, listen, the thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. Now, he has a place to say, stay, but... Do, do you ever, like for instance, I went back to Kentucky this past week. My mom's birthday was on Friday and, and uh, I wanted to spend her birthday with her. And so I drove down and when I drive down there, it's like going back home. So when he's talking about homelessness, it's not like he's on the streets panhandling. He actually has a place to stay. What he's saying is now, my homeland is gone. I am, I am homeless. And then he goes on to say, I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Now, when we're talking about having joy through loss, it doesn't mean that you don't grieve through the loss. You should grieve. It's a part of the process of going through loss. But you can still have joy because you can have hope. And you can have hope because of Christ and the victory over sin and death. He goes on to say, say, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, what has just happened in Jeremiah's life? Something horribly bad. Something he knew was getting ready to happen because God had given him insight and the words to speak not only to King Zedekiah and the couple kings before him, but to the whole nation. And everybody scoffed at Jeremiah. Oh, you're stupid. Oh, that's not going to happen. Oh, you're an idiot. Look it up. Read through Jeremiah. They were really hard on him. They got physical with him. They beat him because of him being the messenger of God. And now what does he say? He's gone through all of this grief, and now what he had talked about has actually come true. And instead of standing there with his hand on his hips and a finger wagging, I told you so. You should have listened to me. 
Now see what mess we're in? See, God could have been merciful if you'd turned your hearts back to him. What is he doing? He's not saying that at all. He saw the writing on the wall. He knew what the ramifications and the consequences would be. And he told them this. I dare to hope when I remember this. And what does he remember? He remembers the merciful, he remembers God's faithful love and how it never ends, even when he punishes, punishes his people. He remembers that God's mercies never cease. What has just happened? God's mercy has been withheld and wrath has come and the nation has been wiped out. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. He even says that while being homeless. Now go on to verse 25. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. Why is he saying, all right, because this is foreign to our culture. Why would I lay face down in the dust and hope? Because it shows a sense of humility to lay, I always get these words messed up, prostrate, okay, Sometimes I say prostate, and you don't want to lay your prostate down before the Lord. You lay prostrate before the Lord. So they're laying down, face on the ground, prostrate before the Lord. It's almost like they're groveling in the dust, but he's saying the genuine nature of humbling yourself before the Lord is what matters. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Oh, isn't that a great promise? No one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he, who brings grief? See, this is one of those hard passages that pastors don't want to talk about. The Lord brings grief? Well, then I won't follow him. I don't care how good he is. If he brings grief, then I don't want to follow that kind of God. Why does he bring grief? See, the, we, we have, I have people that question me on passages like this, and they say, well, I just can't believe in a God like that. Well, then who do you believe in? What do you believe in? What do you trust in? Where do you find your foundation? Because you have to ask further the question, if the Lord brings grief, why does he bring grief? It's not like he's willy-nilly, you know, handing out grief to everybody. Why does he bring grief? He brings grief because of the consequences of our actions that don't align with him. And sometimes, even when we haven't done anything wrong, we get caught in the crosshairs because guess what? We live in a fallen, sinful, broken world where sin, disease, and evil runs rampant. Turn on the news. You can't miss it. But one of the things about God's people is, though he hands out grief, he also provides a way out, a way of escape, away into the promises that he says would make us new and fresh and good. It's about dependence upon him. No one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Do you hear that? Let me, let me say that again because I think some of you may have missed it and some of you online who are watching from home. He does not enjoy 
does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Parents, unless you are sadistic or abusive, you know that when you have to punish your child, it is not something you enjoy doing. My wife and I were spankers, and you may disagree with this on that, but we only spanked for direct disobedience. Now, direct disobedience is where you tell your child, this is what's going to happen. You need to do this. You need to not do this. And they look at you, and they go, mm, kink, you know, and do that thing that you told them not to do or don't do what you told them to do. We didn't always spank in those circumstances, but when the opportunity necessitated it, we did spank only in the bottom. And here's the deal. I hated doing it. And I know a lot of parents hate to do it. You, can, you may have a different disciplinary uh, rule in your house. But for us, it worked. And when they got too old for that, we ended up doing something different. We took precious items away that had become their prized items. And then when electronics became the thing, we would take electronics or the privilege to, to those things away. I didn't gain joy from crushing the spirit of my kids when you have to punish. Most good parents don't. They're not like, ha, 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 I'm going to stick it to you. No, most of us are like, I really hate to do this. And I see the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the wailing. And there's a part of your heart that's like, I don't want them to, I don't, I, maybe if I just, I'll shorten, I'll make it. See, God doesn't take joy in this kind of discipline or punishment, causing sorrow and hurt. See, if people crush underfoot all the prisoners of the land, if they deprive others of their rights in defiance of the Most High, if they twist justice in the courts, doesn't the Lord see all these things? See, what he's doing is he's reminding the people of Israel as he's writing the lamentations, these laments. He said, listen to what you guys did. You were crooked. You, you twisted, you cheated people. You gave in to the pagan moralities, which is basically immorality of the culture around you. You started going to these sex cults, and you started doing a ton of different things. And God said, no, 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 for centuries until he got to the point where he said, I've had enough. Well, why does God do bad things like that? Why does he cause grief? Because he's given you an exit road every step of the way. And he said, stop doing this, get off here. Stop doing that, get off here. Stop doing that, get off here. Those of you that are in this place today may know what I'm talking about. You kept going down that road full bore with the pedal to the metal, doing the wrong things. And God was providing you exit ramps because you felt wrong. there was something in you that knew was wrong if you continued in this pattern of behavior. I can't keep doing this. This is going to get me in trouble. I can't keep doing this. This is going to end up bad. I can't keep doing that. I can't keep doing this. And there's these exit signs saying, get off here. Get off here. This is a road to salvation. This is a road to redemption. And you just, after a while, turned a blind eye until you got to the end of that road, which was a cliff. See, this is what was happening to Judah and Israel. They just kept going down that road, and God said, fine, I'm done giving you exit signs. There are no more exits beyond this point, and you just have to succumb to the fate of your own choices. Do you see what happened to them? 
he got to a point of no return. God actually has limits. And his limits, when he pulls back and says, I'm done, he will leave you to your own devices. He will turn you over to what New Testament calls a reprobate mind, to where you are so numb to the reality of the evil and the bad stuff in your life that you don't really care anymore. And you throw caution to the wind, and you will either hit a wall, you will crash and burn, and God forbid you destroy the relationships in your life, but you kill someone in the process. Hopefully the consequences that you've suffered haven't led to that. But see, here's the hope. Even Jeremiah was saying, even when it gets that bad, and when there's that much loss, there's still hope. Even for the worst case, you may consider yourself one of the worst cases. Guess what? You're in good company. Read scripture. Every one of those people were worst case scenarios. Moses was a murderer. Abraham was a liar. David was an adulterer and a murderer. You go on into the New Testament. I mean, you, you, you look at every one of the characters that God decided he was going to use. He took them from most, the most despicable places, and he turned them into champions and heroes of faith. Not because they were perfect, but because he knew that they were worth it. But do you know you're worth it? God knows you're worth it. Do you know you're worth it? Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? Does the Most High send both calamity and good? Then why should we mere humans complain when we are punished for our sins? This has been one of the, one of the biggest issues I've struggled with as a pastor, not because I struggle with the knowledge or understanding of it. I struggle with explaining it to others who ask this question. Why do bad things happen to me? Why, why, why is this? And, and I can sit and tell you, well, this decision wasn't good. This one wasn't great either based on your own testimony. And then when you said that, I mean, <clears throat> you've kind of orchestrated a lot of this stuff up to this point, And now you're wondering why you're going through tough times and the consequences of your behavior. <laughs> I can tell you why, because I can see it from this perspective, but you need to stand in my perspective and look at your own life in great detail and see what God sees and see what other people might see that you yourself are blind to. If you're willing to listen to reason and godly counsel, you might just might have a chance to see how you've had a hand to play in your own demise. Let me take that on a grander scale. We might just see as a nation what we've done to get us to this point in the year 2020 that has been our own demise. No matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, I know we are shooting arrows back and forth at each other, depending on what side of this issue you sit on. You know what Jesus says? <clears throat> he said it's not about this or about this. It's about this. The enemy does a masterful job as a great confuser, manipulator, deceiver. You know what he does a great job at? Getting the church to fight the same culture battles in the same ways the culture battles. Does that make sense? See, we don't fight with the weapons of this world. We are not to fight the world's battles with the world's weapons. We are to fight the battles in this world from a spiritual perspective. 
Ephesians chapter 6, one of my favorite passages. The battle armor of God, we call it spiritual armor. I mentioned it last week in the sermon. How do we fight these battles of racism and prejudice and discrimination and and politicization of all things in this culture? How do we fight it as a church? Huh? We fight it through love, through joy, through peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Church. That should be, you, you know why I've memorized that? Not because I'm a pastor. I would have memorized that regardless because I have to keep myself in check every week. When I read the paper or listen to podcasts or see the news or do anything, I have to screen everything I hear and everything I see through the fruit of the Spirit. And I have to, when I start to feel my dander getting up, when I start to get angry, I have to ask myself, is this a righteous anger that glorifies God or is this a a dangerous, destructive anger that will destroy those in my path? Tools like Facebook, Twitter, and those kind of things become the onslaught tools of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus is saying, I never called you to fight those battles. What does God call us to fight he calls us to fight for the truth but not the way the world fights for the truth because the world doesn't have the truth and you see the result of people fighting for the truth who don't know the truth as they assassinate one another church we should not be that way we have a higher calling We have a greater reward. And because of that higher calling and that greater reward, we need to let others know that God has a higher calling for them and a greater reward for them than what they're getting right now. I don't know where you are. You may be in the sound of my voice hearing this and going, you may be shutting me off. But I hope you're hearing me for what I'm saying and not for what I'm not saying. I hope you're hearing the truth behind the words. I love you guys. I love everyone who, who listens to this. Even if they hate me, I still love them. Why? Because Jesus says that we should love one another. That the world will, will know we are the disciples of Christ by our love for one another. Are we modeling that for the culture? Or have we so cocooned ourselves off from the culture that the culture sees the church as irrelevant? Well, they're doing a pretty good job of it because we have so decided that we want to be so separate from the culture. And I mean, in every way, that we have no influence over the culture anymore. And I'm not talking about going out and picketing or protesting. I'm talking about going out as the hands and the feet and the body of Christ. What did Jesus do when he was here on this earth? One of the most tumultuous political seasons the world has ever known. You think it was bad now? Look what was going on in Jesus' day. They were on a razor edge tension of political tumult. They were a mighty nation, just like the United States. But guess what happened to Rome? Anybody want to take a guess? 
What happened to Rome after a while? The most mighty nation on the earth up to that point in time. Because they continued to degrade. They succumbed to their own devices. Their own wickedness and evil behaviors. Were they a God, a God nation? No, they were a pagan nation when Jesus was here. But you see where that got them. Godless nations cannot stand forever, but God's kingdom will. And as kingdom citizens, we will stand with Christ forever. We are representatives of that kingdom this side of heaven. And everywhere we go, the kingdom of God goes with us because we are kingdom representatives. Before you were a citizen of anywhere else on the planet Earth, you were a citizen of the Most High King of God's kingdom. And that is the first and foremost and most important thing that should be in your life. Now, I'm not saying that I don't think we live in a great country. It's one of the best countries on the face of the earth. What the sad thing is, is that we've left our roots in Judeo-Christian principles, and we've decided, ah, we don't need that anymore. We can make up whatever we want to. And you see where that's left us. I told you I'd get to, I haven't even gotten to my points. All right, so let me do this. I'm going to wrap it up real quick. Listen to this. Here's the key point this morning. If you're watching from home, even when everything in life seems hopeless, God is good. Let me say that one more time, because it is so simple. I thought, I need to make it even more profound than that. And I kept coming back, you know, this nudge of God. No, you just need to say it simply. Even when everything else in life seems hopeless, God is good. Simply put. Simply put. The first point is God is good to those who depend on him. Do you depend on him? See, I find a lot of us do this. We depend on him when, when, when things are pretty rough. Oh, God, where are you? Help me out, God. Help. Do you depend on him in the good times too? Because the biggest drift in our spiritual lives happens when things are going our way. And then we get caught off guard when something trips us up and we're like, where did that come from? God, why? And God's probably just like, hey, dude, I'm trying to get your attention. You know, you've been, you've been drifting for a while on this sea of forgetfulness and uh, uh, you needed a wake-up call. See, I don't, hear me out on this. I don't think God is the author of confusion or disease. He didn't create that stuff. I think it's a result of the fall and the degradation of the whole created order because of evil that exists in this world. I think disease has come about through mutation of cellular matter and those kind of things and through animal all of that stuff from the beginning of time. You look at Genesis 3 on, everything was broken. Everything was susceptible to death. And when things are susceptible to death, they are also susceptible to other kinds of sickness, illness, and disease. And it just mutates till we get to our current day and age where you have a myriad of other diseases that exist. And you think, God, why? It's because of sin and death. It, it was ushered in through disobedience when everything broke at the beginning of time. Or at least at the fall, I should say. Do you depend on him in the good times as well as the bad? Or do you, do you leave him in the bad times as well as in the good? Where do you find it the hardest to depend on him? That's my question. It's a rhetorical question. Answer that in your own mind. Where do you find it the hardest to depend on him? Because that's where you need to depend on him the most. The second thing is God is good to those who wait quietly for salvation from him. Now, this is salvation in two different perspectives, all right? Salvation can mean to be lost and without Christ 
and then come to Christ and believe in him and let him make you into a new creation. That's what we call salvation traditionally in the church. Is that for we want people to make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of their life, their lives, to change their old ways, to become a new creation, to begin to follow Jesus, obey his teachings and his commands, and to live a life of righteousness for his name's sake. But there's a second salvation. And it's not, uh, okay, I got to do the one salvation and then another. No, this salvation is God saved me from my situation. Okay? Where were the Israelites? What had happened to them? They had been punished by God. But what does Jeremiah tell us? He says, we will wait for it. Because here's the thing. If you read the book of Jeremiah, what does he tell them? God promises them this punishment will not last forever. This judgment's coming. Brace yourself. But this punishment from me will not last forever. Because I am a loving God, I will also provide compassion and grace and mercy for you. So this punishment is temporary. A lot of times when we're in the midst of tragedy, loss, it feels like it's going to be forever and we can't see any way out of it and there's no light at the end of the tunnel and we beg God, why, why, why? And he says, just hold on, I'm with you, stay with me, I've got this. If you let me, I'll walk you out the right way through this struggle. But if you try to do it on your own, you're going to keep running into walls, stumbling over stones. You can't do this without me. Even when I discipline, I love you, and I will walk you through the discipline. As a loving parent, when I discipline my children, when I take something away, it is temporary. It is not eternal because I want them to learn from the experience of punishment. I don't leave them in a corner and time out for a week. You know, it's not the way that works. God, because he is so merciful and so loving and so compassionate, says, you will have to go through a punishment for a while. You're going to have to sit in that, look, you're going to have to sit in that punishment. And it's going to look tragic. It's going to look bad. It's going to look like there's no way out. But I promise you, even when you don't realize it and you don't see me in the darkness of the moment, I'm right there with you. Trust me. Even in my discipline, I'm with you. Because if I didn't love you, I wouldn't discipline you. But I want you to learn. I want you to grow. I want you to become strong. God is good to those who wait quietly for salvation. And lastly, God is good to those who submit to the yoke of his discipline at a young age. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. You ever heard of that? Right? It's harder the older we grow to change our ways. I'm going to admit to that. I don't know if anybody else would raise their hands. <clears throat> We often think the way that I got saved is the way that everybody should get saved. This is my favorite hymn because I got saved by listening to that hymn and the Lord warmed my heart to that. And so we get, do you see what happens? We, we, get, we, we like the way things were, not the way things are. And so oftentimes, especially as we grow older, it gets harder to change. So what do you think, <clears throat> what do you think he puts that in there? What do you think Jeremiah makes that statement? It is good, God is good to those who submit to the yoke of his discipline while they're young because you're more pliable and you're more able and teachable when you're younger because you are, the whole world is a stage of education. 
You're in school, you're in college, and you're still soaking up all of this knowledge, right? That, that rhymed. Did you catch that? You're in school, you're in college, you're soaking up knowledge. All right. Sorry, I just caught myself off guard with that. It was a little scary. Anyway, so here's the deal. You do this kind of stuff, and then what happens? As you get older, you get more life experience. Oftentimes, and this is just the nature of growing older. Again, I told you by experience, I'm learning. It's harder to change your ways. You have certain patterns and behaviors and ways of doing things, and then when somebody challenges that, you get really upset. How dare you? I've been doing this for how many years, and you're trying to tell me to do it different? You see, Jeremiah is saying, listen, generation that is now coming into exile, you need to learn from your parents' mistakes. The things that got this nation into this condition, you need to learn from. Don't follow a pattern of behavior that is destructive and that leads you away from God. Learn the discipline of God now. What is a yoke? A yoke is something, a wooden structure that goes over the backs of animals, like an oxen or a horse. And when the yoke is, it helps to evenly distribute the weight of the burden that they're hauling or carrying behind them. You see a, a horse-drawn carriage, two horses drawing a large wagon or, or a load, and there's this, there's this yoke that goes over the shoulders of them so they can pull together. And what does it say? To submit to the yoke of his discipline while they're young. You know why it says that? Because Jesus says this too in the New Testament. This yoke is something that Jesus or that God pulls with us. When he puts us through discipline, as I mentioned a while ago, he says, I'm with you. I'll be there right by your side. I'm actually doing work in you and around you for your good, even through the discipline, even through the punishment. Are any of you weary and burdened? Do you need rest? Do you? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek and humble at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we think of the yoke of his discipline, when we think of the yoke of his rest and the burdens he gives, it's light because he's pulling with us. Actually, he's pulled more of the weight for us than we can ever imagine. He's not pulling equally. He's pulling more than our own weight. And he just says, I want you to stay with me and pull with me. Corey Ten Boom was a woman who experienced the goodness of God during one of the darkest times in modern history in the 20th century. She lived during the 20th century and experienced the evils of World War II in Holland after the takeover by Nazi Germany. Having been a part of the underground resistance by hiding many Jewish people in her home during the war, she and her family would eventually be betrayed into the hands of the enemy. After being arrested, Corey and her, sis his, and her sister Betsy would end up in one of the most brutal concentration camps during the war, Ravensbrück in Havel, Germany. While they were there, they would suffer many hardships, beatings, humiliations. Betsy would ultimately succumb to the ravages of starvation and disease within the camp, and she ended up dying as a result of starvation. After the war, 
Corey, having lost many of her family members, would begin speaking and ministering about the goodness of God through her time in prison during the war. Her books entitled The Hiding Place and Tramp for the Lord retell her, her and Betsy's experiences throughout the war. The following is an excerpt from one of her many speaking engagements after the war. Listen to what she says. And she would have had a very thick Holland accent. Now, I'm not going to emulate that, but just hear it for what it's worth. She said, often, I've heard people say, how good God is. You see, we prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic. And look at the lovely weather. You see the contrast? She says, Often I hear people say, oh, how good God is. We pray that God wouldn't rain on our church picnic. <laughs> and right at the last moment, the skies opened up and it's beautiful. God is so good. And she goes on to say, yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God is also good when he allowed my sister, Betsy, to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. Sorry, I'm, I don't know why this is overwhelming. me. I, I read this multiple times this week. And it's hitting me, hitting me differently today. She says, I remember on one occasion when I was very discouraged in the camp. Everything around us was dark. And she even goes on to say, there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy, he'll, he's not forgotten us. Remember his word, Corey. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. Corey concludes, there is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone, and may God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. Most of us have never experienced the horrors of war, of a concentration camp, of seeing many of our own family members die of disease, starvation, or execution because of the because of the persecution. God is good, ladies and gentlemen, and can be trusted no matter what we face in this life. Even when discipline comes from his very hand, he's good. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as the father, the son, he delights in. Life is hard, but God is always good. Psalm 30, verses 4 through 5, Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And one final word. On God's goodness through discipline, the writer of the New Testament book, Hebrews, writes this. After quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, 12, what I just quoted to you, 
As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by their parents? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of Spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Do you agree with that? No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful, the author writes. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. As our worship team come, comes forward to close this out today, let me ask you this question. Those of you at home as well, if you've still stayed on with me this long, there is a God who loves you, who loves you enough to discipline you, who cares for you enough to give his son for you. And if you do not know that God, that Lord, or that Savior, it's been a while since I've done this, but I'm asking you today, to make that decision. I can't force that on you. Neither can God force that decision on you. It has to be a volitional choice on your behalf to say, I believe in Jesus and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, come and make me clean. Cleanse me from my past. Make me white as snow. Take away my sins and make me into a new creation. I ask your forgiveness of all of those sins. That's all it takes. And it's not about praying the prayer. It's about the change of the heart. Do you really believe that? And maybe today you've wandered from the Lord. Maybe you've spent time away. You grew up in the church and you got baptized and you maybe had a relationship for a while or maybe it was a shallow one at best and you, you, you were at this place in life where you're like, I can't the exit ramps are gone, and I've gone over the cliff. Or maybe you still have some exit ramps, and God's saying, please take this one. This is your exit ramp. Maybe God's calling you today to say, I find, I give in, I give up. And he can say to you, okay, that's what I've needed from you. Now I can do something wonderful in your life. It's scary to let go of control. But you have to learn to trust the one who is in control and has your best interest at heart. Maybe there's somebody in your family that you're praying for that's experiencing this right now. Whatever the case may be, if you want to be prayed for, prayed with, or to have somebody pray with you for somebody else you know, come to my right, your left. Social distancing, please. Actually, this isn't social distancing because you want somebody to pray with you, they're going to be all up in your face. So <clears throat> you come over here and you're basically telling our prayer team and those that will pray with you, I want you to come pray with me. I'm willing to take that risk, okay? If you want to pray alone, please social distance on this side. Give people space. Nobody will bother you on my left, your right. And as I mention every week, the Lord doesn't just hear from these spaces up here. He hears from your seat. I'm just asking you, make a decision for him today. There is need, there, there's no riding this line. It's either yes to Christ or no. 
Let me pray over you. Father, thank you for your tender mercies, which are new every morning. Thank you that your anger only lasts through the night, but your joy comes in the morning. And though it seems strange to even thank you for this, thank you for the discipline because it shows that you love us. We are not perfect, nor are we perfected this side of heaven. That's why we need you. We need your guidance, direction, and we need those boundary markers. And sometimes when we test those boundaries, you remind us they're there through a discipline. Forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make us into new creations this morning. Even as a church, as the pastor of this congregation, I repent of the sins of this church, of this place. God, we want nothing more than to glorify you as the body of Christ. I pray that you would make your presence known this morning as you pour out your Holy Spirit upon all flesh in this place. Make convictions so strong that people buckle under the weight so that they can know what new life really means. And God, make your blessing even stronger as we experience the goodness of Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.